Hello and welcome to the Hard Tech Podcast. Joining me today is Roger Pessina, CEO of Eve Vehicles Corporation, a creator of internet-connected DFR networks for first responders and public safety. DFR stands for Drones as First Responders. Uh, Roger, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Daniel. One of the earliest cases of drones being used as first responders occurred in 2018. Uh, the Chula Vista Police Department in Southern California started sending out drones whenever 911 calls came in to assess what kind of human police response is necessary. What does the current state of um, the current state and near future of DFRs? What does it look like? Yeah, uh, Chula Vista, they were uh, a pioneer in using drone as a first responder. Uh, they're the first police station, I believe, in the country that was actually sending a drone to respond to 911 calls. Um, what they realized uh, early on is that um, by sending a robot to these calls um, early on, uh, you can actually save a, a lot of resources from the city um, because oftentimes uh, you only have to send a drone to these calls to be able to, you know, be able to respond to them uh, correctly. And um, also, like, there are situations where uh, by having eyes on the scene really quickly, you know whether or not you need to send either more police or EMS or fire. Um, and, um, and yeah, in the sense that that was a pilot and it was a few years ago, but a lot of police stations nowadays are looking at implementing something like that, but in a grander scale, um, where potentially you can actually have drones that live in their environment um, in base stations and whatnot. Um, Chula Vista, I believe, was actually sending drones directly from the police station to these calls. Um, so... Chula Vista pioneered this, and uh, we have a bunch of police departments uh, using technology. But uh, is this likely to be adopted more in the future? Is it is it something that is getting traction? It certainly is. It certainly is. Um, right now, I I really believe that we're moving to a new era in drone as a first responder. Um, drones were used by police stations, fire, EMS um, extensively for the beginning of the industry. Um, I really believe that the drone industry kicked off with the Phantom One when it was re released in January of 2013. And since then, there have been multiple police stations and fire departments and um, EMS services across the nation that have been using drones. But for the most part, they're really human intensive, where you'll bring the drone with you in your vehicle and whatnot. And um, there are companies now in across the U.S. that are trying to actually do uh, drone is a first responder, but in a network system that lives in the city where um, drones are positioned strategically around town to be able to respond to these calls very quickly within three minutes and whatnot. And that's what we're trying to build um, at EVE. Nice. Uh, you said it all kicked off with the Phantom One. Is that uh, DJ? DJI, yeah. DJI, yeah. So DJI, um, they're a company out of Shenzhen, China, and they're the market leader in consumer and enterprise uh, drones. Um, mm. Last I checked, I think they have a, a private valuation of about like $15 billion. And um, they've been around for a little bit over 10 years, but they pretty much pioneered what it is to be like a consumer enterprise drone and their first out-of-the-box solution um, that worked without needing to have an engineering degree or whatnot was the Phantom One, uh, which was released in January of 2013. So would you say DJI is like the the Apple of drones, something like that? Absolutely, absolutely. DJI, uh, they're 
they're like a crown jewel. Their technology is great. They've uh. been in the industry for, for a very long time. Um, their product experience is fantastic. Um, they're vertically integrated in, in such a sense that they develop all of their own hardware, their own batteries, their own motors, propellers, uh -huh. et cetera. Um, they're very early in the industry too. Uh, they're, they're pretty much the first drone company to be able to enter the consumer drone market where an everyday person could actually buy a drone and use it without necessarily having to have a lot of expertise in the topic. Do you think um, uh, the ability to get in so early was because it took advantage of where most of electronics manufacturing is done, Shenzhen? Has been in Shenzhen? Absolutely. Um, the, so DJI Global was started by a, a gentleman by the name of Frank Wang. And... Um, he started the company in his dorm room when he was a, a college student. And um, back then, DJI really started with flight controllers, which is like the brain of the vehicle that uh -huh. helps keep it like, you know, flying and, 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 and whatnot. And uh, their first consumer product was the Phantom. And it's funny, though, because like um, uh, one of my previous employers, my boss, uh, was Colin Gwen, who was the founder of DJI North America, which mm. was their first office in the U.S. And... Uh, the way Colin says it, Colin ran into Frank at a trade show, and he talked Frank into building eventually what became the Phantom One. And um, uh, long story short, they they launched it. I think it was in BNH Photo, the the website, and they it was a really small release. It was probably a handful, five, ten drones. Mm -hmm. um, they sold out in less than a day. Wow! <laughs> they sold out really quickly, and they ended up asking for more. And I believe they sent like something like a dozen or two dozen for the next batch, which was the following week. And they sold out in an hour. And <laughs> uh, then after that, the way Colin says it is uh, he got a phone call from them and they asked, how much can you fit in a shipping container? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say that that's how the drone industry got kicked off. And before we knew it, that, that company went from a few million in revenue the previous year to 150 million in revenue in about a year and a half after the Phantom released. Uh -huh. And uh, nowadays they have something like 70% market share in North America. About three out of every four drones sold here is a DJI. Three out of every four? Yeah. That's a monopoly. It's, yeah, it's, uh, they're really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm glad we had that discussion because it shows how you were at the forefront of, uh, you know, working with the, uh, a company that is basically one of the first to get this started, and uh, now you're working on technology that is a little bit more advanced. Yes. Um, so your former boss uh, founded uh, DJI in North America, mm -hmm. and then you have an extensive background in uh, vehicle technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, just yeah, walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, so um, my undergraduate degree was in mechanical engineering. Um, I studied at one of the uh, University of Texas branches in South Texas. Um, uh, about like 11, 12 years ago, I, I built my College of Engineering's first drone as my senior design project. Hmm. So I'd been in the industry for a while. Um, back when I was working on drones at the, at the beginning, like people thought I was like working on something that was going to go to Afghanistan. <laughs> like, and I was like, no, no, there are these little like multi-rotor things that carry a camera or can carry a package or whatnot. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so the, the bug bit me really early. And, uh, and to be completely honest, like I was really taken um, by the technology um, in the sense that like I saw it as a way that eventually maybe one day you could build like flying cars out of that tech. So uh -huh. that, that really, uh, that really got me very interested. So I wanted to learn more about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's funny how 
sometimes when you dream about the future you think you are you think you're having delusions of grandeur until it actually happens right uh, absolutely and we're going to get into the subject of flying cars uh, you know in in this discussion yeah. uh but um that's good that's great so actually let's talk about it right now yeah um <laughs> recently a company called aleph aeronautics mm-hmm. right received limited faa approval for an ev toll car so ev toll is a uh, electric vet electric vertical takeoff and landing right yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why it's okay. So, an EV tow car. You can now pre-order a flying car for three hundred thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> a flying car uh, with a down payment of just one hundred and fifty dollars. So, again, just paint the picture of the current and future landscape of EV tows in general. So, just flying cars, drones, planes, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, there is like different people in the industry right now that have very different visions of where this is going. Um, I've, I've met uh, quite a few founders of flying car companies. There's actually um, uh, another startup uh, at JJ Pickle Research Campus, which is currently where our um, office is. As, at, in, as in UT? As in UT, uh, JJ Pickle Research Campus, yeah. And um, we actually do a lot of testing in the soccer field uh, with another uh, startup company that they have a flying car, and they're called Lift Aircraft. In the wow. Hexa. And, um, and yeah, so, so in a sense, like, um, like one of the reasons why I really think that drones are important, especially drones as a first responder and even drone delivery is it's almost like the first step to get flying cars into the market. Uh And this is my outlook, how I I think it's going to happen. But I really think that they're going to develop these air traffic systems that are going to manage whether Google or Amazon can deliver that package or that burrito from Chipotle or whatnot to your front door. Mm-hmm. And that air traffic management system is going to be the blueprint for eventually what will be like a flying car network system that you can leave your house and get in your vehicle and be on the other side of town in like five minutes. Um, but I really think that it needs to happen in stages. Um, flying car technology is really disruptive. It's a paradigm change. Mm-hmm. Um when you think about it, humans, we've been traveling in two dimensions for for like nearly all of civilization. First, you're walking, then you're on a horse, then you're on a buggy, then you're on an automobile. But nonetheless, you're still traveling in an XY plane. And the whole flying car thing like adds that third dimension. So mm-hmm. you can actually like fly over traffic. You can, you know, do all these different things. Um, but for it to work, uh, like I said, it's baby steps um, just because it's they need to plan how to do it safely. Um, you can't necessarily have like a, a bad actor that's flying a car that may crash into a building or something. So it's very likely gonna be very autonomous. Um, I really don't believe uh, people who have flying cars will be able to actually fly them inside of like in an urban environment, maybe like in a rural area, they'll be able to mm. give that control to you. But but yeah, I know like multiple companies around the world are trying to do the different models. Um, I'm a big believer that there has to be a driving component to this technology as well. So some flying car concepts are just eVTOLs. And what that means, like you said, electric vertical takeoff and landing, they're like um, electric helicopters, but they can't necessarily drive you down the street. Mm -hmm. And um, there are companies out there that are developing hybrid vehicles that have the ability to drive and fly. And I really feel like those are going to be the ones that are going to be the real winners in this marketplace because... If you're trying to get to a consumer, like build the people's flying car, like mm-hmm. the Ford Model T was the people's automobile like 100 years ago, um, 
there really has to be that transition where people still have the ability to drive their car maybe down the street. But if you really need to travel far and you want to be traffic, then you can turn it into like, you know, it's flying mode mm -hmm. and you can make it to the other side of town. But like I said, like things like regulatory environment, like, you know, rules and laws and all these things need to be worked out. But I genuinely believe by the year 2040, maybe the latest 2045, you'll see flying cars in the skies over America. Like, I think it's going to be one of those things we see in our lifetime for sure. And one thing I'm thinking about right now is, is he, uh, there are some countries and some states within the U.S. that are pushing for all electric cars by a certain time, right? Yeah. And uh, in the early days, it used to be you know, a lot of skepticism about about electric cars and people were like, no, this is never going to take up. It's never going to take off. Right. No one is gonna, ever going to drive an electric car or only a few people are going to drive it. But now, <laughs> they are taking over. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to a point where you say you said something about it might only be, they might only be allowed in remote areas. Yeah. But if we get to a point where uh, EV tolls become, you know, become so good and so widely adopted, are we going to see government regulations in some cities, some states, some countries where they're like, okay, now if you're not driving a three-dimensional car, yeah. then then you got to get out or something like that. You think so? There's definitely going to be an inflection point for sure. I mean, there is there is there was a day probably maybe I don't know anywhere between fifty to a hundred years ago where the last person who had a horse that was like riding their horse into town was told hey, you can't ride that horse anymore. Yeah, we live exactly. in the age of the automobile now. The horse is a previous age. There will be a point when the market adoption passes 51%, and more than half of America has a flying car, like, you know, that they used to commute to work or, you know, what, whatever, like um, leisurely travel and, and whatnot. And I think that's when that, that's going to happen, where eventually there'll be a regulation that say, if you're powering, you know, your petro car from the 1990s or whenever, like, mm -hmm. um, even your electric car that doesn't have the ability to fly, it's like, <laughs> hey, um, it's time to move to, like, they'll probably do, like, a thing where they'll give a certain date, like they did with digital television, where, like, mm -hmm. we're moving from this platform to this platform, you have till this day to jump. Mm -hmm. And, um, but technological progress, like, you know, technology is yeah. always evolving, civilization's always growing, things are always changing. Um, one thing that we know for sure is things aren't going to stay the same. They're going to change in the future. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in um, in change being driven by the need to solve a problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's why we develop as, as engineers. That's why we develop technologies. Right. Absolutely. It's to solve a certain problem, satisfy a certain need, things like that. So, if we have increased population, right, increase in population or, you know, increased density in our cities, mm -hmm. then I can see a situation in which this becomes very, very well. And just like electric cars, right, when 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 Tesla first started, they used the cars used to be really expensive, mm -hmm. right? So if you have people who uh, can afford three-dimensional cars and want to just get over traffic, get somewhere faster, yeah. and they all decide to adopt the technology, mm -hmm. then it would just... I, I'm I'm almost saying this like the way electric cars like uh, uh, like the trend with electric cars. I'm almost seeing that with this in in the future. You know, mm -hmm. especially since many of the companies uh, developing uh, the concept of flying cars are actually starting from where cars are. 
So yeah. electric cars, the flying cars are electric powered, right? Yeah. yeah. Most of them, or maybe even all of them. I don't know. I don't know anyone that is not electric powered right now. Yeah. And they're starting from that base and they're like, this is the next level. Yeah. Right? So it, that'll be very interesting to see. Okay. Um, moving away from uh, DJI and LF Electronics and, uh, and flying cars, let's talk about uh, e-vehicles a, a bit more about what you're working on. So you have, your technology is called Crow. Yes. Uh, so the, the right. Crow is, uh, it's right here, uh, it's a drone as a first responder. Yeah. Um, it actually originally came out of um, a DOD hackathon that me and my co-founder, we won back in November of 2021, I believe. And uh, it was called National Security uh, Innovation Network Hackathon Power Play. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like, we, we floated the idea for a concept of a drone that lived in the environment, that it could perch and land on building rooftops, and it could also grasp a power line to charge its battery. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was uh, the original concept. And that one was uh, called Camera Reconnaissance on Wire, mm-hmm. but that's C-R-O-W, Crow. Mm-hmm. And then later, as the product evolved over the last couple of years, uh, we renamed it with a Q because it turned into a quadrotor, and then we called it Quadrotor Reconnaissance on Wings mm-hmm. um, because we actually um, also got this really amazing um, partnership with Army Research Laboratories uh, for some technology that they developed out of the University of Maryland called Quadrotor Biplane. And so the eventually the crow will have these wings on it. So we just we, we called it crow uh, now, and that's like what 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 the name is at for at the moment. <laughs> nice, nice. So so it's uh, it's an eVTOL that yeah. that can live in environments that it surveils, right? Yes, correct. Nice. Okay, before we um, get back into the concept of uh, a drone living in its environment, yeah. uh, let me go back to eVTOLs real quick. So eVTOL tail seater drones like your mm-hmm. wonderful drone here mm-hmm. with the lights police lights and everything yeah. um how how do they operate from a just from a general engineering standpoint okay. how, how how does a an evitol operate like take off land and things like that yeah um so this one right here um it's an electric vertical takeoff and landing drone um and it's a multi-rotor so what that means is it has multiple rotors and this one's specifically called a quadcopter or a quadrotor. And um, it's actually the most popular airframe in the drone market right now, where you basically have an X frame or you know a plus frame, and you have four motors and four propellers. And in a nutshell, the way it flies is something called uh, propeller differential thrust. And what that means is the speed at which each motor is going will determine whether it's hovering like level whether it's pitching forward and flying forward or rolling left, right, or even yawing. And all that is done through the sensors on the drone and they can actually measure the, the inertia of the drone and the acceleration um, and also the gyroscope and knows whether or not it's level. So it gives power to each motors and depending on how much power it gives will determine whether the drone is moving forward or moving backwards or climbing mm-hmm. higher or even rotating. And that's some of the things that really fascinated me by the drone industry. So I'm a mechanical engineer. So we're used to like mechanical <laughs> systems yeah. and like, you know, a, you know, a moving shaft or like a moving like linkage that will move a, like an aileron or a flap. Mm-hmm. 
drones have none of that. It's all in the software, like at least multi-rotor drones. And, um, and, and that was really fascinating to me because it means the mechanical frame is very simple and all of the complexity gets shifted onto the code and like its ability to move left and right and all those things and yeah. be able to measure where it is, you know, relative to, you know, its environment. So fantastic. I have a, have a slightly deeper question, right? Engineering yeah. question about this. So in the early days uh, when uh, airplanes were invented, yeah. right? We didn't have, you know, powerful small batteries that you could just use to have liftoff and, and landing pretty much solely on the power of a battery, right. right? You had to rely on nature in a sense, yeah. the concepts of lift, airflow, drag, things like that to, to, to allow the plane take off and land. Yeah. Is there any of that with drones or is it just purely have a battery pack in there, take off, land? Yeah, no, uh, they, they definitely have wing drones that are gliders. Um, I mean, there are drones that are like airships and balloons that, you know, basically float, like, you know, using like Archimedes principle with like a, a light gas or whatnot. Um, they do have a little, there's some that are, can be without electricity. And then there's some that actually do have power. Maybe they have a, a propeller to be able to like change its direction and whatnot. But um, in terms of them, them being like winged, there are a lot of winged drones and, um, just being able to like add an airfoil to like the vehicle extends its like flight time. So like, for example, like the, um, the Google um, delivery drone, the wing drone, um, it is an EV tall, but it also has a very large airfoil that allows it to travel much further because it has that um, Zipline, which is another drone delivery company. They too have a solution that has a long airfoil that allows the drone to be able to extend its range. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, to answer your question, the, the, there are definitely principles of lift and, and drag and, and things, um, depending on what type of vehicle you're, you're building. So basically, if you don't adopt fundamental principles of flight, mm -hmm. then you're going to have a pretty inefficient drone. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to uh, uh, drones living in the environment. Uh, they surveil, right? What are, what are the benefits, just generally speaking, of having a drone living environment is surveillance. So the way that they did it at Chula Vista was they had drones that would leave the police station and then they would go and then they would come back. Um, mm -hmm. That does give you a certain limited radius of what you can actually operate in based on like, you know, the flight time of the drone. It arrives, it idles, and then it needs to come back to swap out its battery. Um, where the industry is moving towards and what we're doing at EVE is we're basically developing the network as well. And when I say that is like we have stations that are in the environment and we call them crow nests because the drone is called the crow. It's its nest, you know, crow nest. Um, our station is designed to basically it has a small computer on it. It reports its GPS location. It has some uh, DC charging electronics as well, so when the drone docks, it can charge the drone's battery. Um, by actually positioning the stations in an environment, you can actually strategically put them in areas, for example, where there is crime or areas where there might be um, a risk of fire or like, you know, um, areas where there's already been um, some data that's shown that is more prone for like traffic accidents or whatnot and you need to send EMS services there relatively quickly. So when we built the drone, we really wanted to it's extend its ability to stay in the environment. Because like I said, the first 10 years of the industry were all about 
you have a drone, you have a human pilot, the human pilot's always watching the drone. And then whenever the battery runs low, they bring the drone back to them and then they pull out the battery and they put in a new fully charged battery. We really wanted the interaction that, you know, our, our clients and customers have with our drones to be very behind a window, almost like a screen, in that the drone is almost like a robot that lives in its environment by itself, that maybe the actual pilot and the person that's flying the drone won't actually interact with the physical robot um, for weeks or months on end. And um, the idea is that um, you're able to extend um, the value and also like have the drone be able to stay out there longer by having like infrastructure positioned there for the drones to actually you know, live. So like, in a sense, the crow nest is kind of like, think of it like, you know, a bird's little water pond where it goes back to drink water to refresh mm-hmm. itself to be able to stay alive and stay out there. And, um, and that was really the vision for the product. Like we did, we wanted to really, like, move the technology a little bit forward by having that. And we aren't the only company that's doing that. Like a lot of the drone network companies, even the drone delivery companies, they have the same thing where they have a station, they have a drone, and, and whatnot. Um, and, um, and, and I really think that's the way to go. And also something that's really important as well, Daniel, is that for, for like the start now, like a lot of internet applications are being built using drones, which wasn't really the case at the beginning. The beginning was, was very like radio intensive, you know, like long range Wi-Fi and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the ability to communicate to a cloud and have that send a signal directly to the drone and you could be in Austin flying a drone in Houston or be in New York flying a drone in Dallas. Like that is something that's starting to happen now. And I really think that's very powerful too. Nice. Nice. Um, Hmm. We can get into like subject of like um, how, what that really entails in terms of, uh, but I'm thinking about what you said about areas where there's crime. Yeah. Right. Uh, Or places that like, you will see uh, uh, speed signs, for example, in places where uh, police have noticed that there's a lot of racing or, you know, people speed all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking areas where you have a lot of crime, instead of having just police cars and police presence all the time there, uh, people just get nervy and uh, nervous and, uh, and, and, and everything just seems tense. If you have a bunch of drones, yeah. right? Drones like this, mm-hmm. you know, just hidden somewhere, it's probably better because it can still respond just as quickly, right? Yeah. As, uh, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, we will get into the subject of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of predictive public safety or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, very soon in this podcast. But right now, the concept of uh, DFR, is it is it limited by, and again, DFR, drones as first responders, is it limited by the number of drones that can be allowed to fly at any given time by the FAA? Is there some kind of restriction? So a lot of the regulations for what we're doing are relatively new. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to operate a drone beyond line of sight, you need something called the Beyond Visual Line of Sight Waiver. And... Um, there's also different classifications of different drones depending on its size, weight, um, and also like the specific sensors and like you know safety features that the drone has designed into it. Um, but um, yeah, no, in, in a sense, uh, I believe that that the, the FAA has definitely improved um, 
uh, its like vision of the future of what it thinks America's air sky, uh, air, air, like the skies over America are going to look like for both drones and things like air taxis and flying cars, um, which is great because for a while that was the limiting factor. The technology has been ready for a while. Um, mm-hmm. It was really um, taking taking um, a moment to like you know responsibly be able to create re- uh, re- legislation that would allow these like robots, flying robots, to be able to you know, be over the skies of America responsibly. So, so yeah, in a sense, like, in the last year or two, I'm sure you guys have seen drone light shows and whatnot. Yeah. To be able to operate those light shows, you need something called a multi-drone use waiver. That means one pilot can be flying multiple drones at once, and um, that's another kind of waiver that's relatively new. So, like I said, yeah, the FAA has definitely been creating new laws to be able to allow what we're doing to be possible. So which, there's not a lot of restriction on what you can do right now. I mean, there are certain restrictions. You do need to apply for these waivers and whatnot. You need to know what to put in these um, mm-hmm. applications. And, but they are uh, awarding these waivers now, which they weren't like years ago. They, they are approving them? They are approving them, okay. yes. So, so, so you need to apply, and, and you're typically fine when you apply. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that uh, if you have like a base station yeah, and you have all your drones flying from there to... Say you were a public safety department, like a police department or, or, or fire or, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And you always had to deploy your drones from your fire station yeah. every single time there's a fire. Right. Then it's a lot more disruptive than if you place the drones in areas where, you know, crime or fires or things like that were likely to occur more. Yeah. And I'm thinking it's a lot easier to get uh, approval for for things like that and then if you had a central station deploying them from do you think that's an issue or not yeah yeah i i do believe that the centralized hub um is not the way forward mm-hmm. um in part because like like i said earlier like you have like a limited radius of what you can cover if you're only allowed to launch from one location mm-hmm. um so, so one of the things that we want to do is um believe it or not like a lot of police stations like apd they actually have um, uh, permission to be able to put equipment on a lot of the rooftops in downtown um, Austin. And they have that for reasons like, you know, for example, there could be a shooting or like, you know, they need to get a sniper or SWAT on top of a rooftop and they can't be on the phone with the building manager asking permission (laughs) or whatnot. They need to be up there like ASAP. So they have these uh, like, you know, basically permission to be able to put equipment and whatnot across a lot of these buildings. So one of the ideas is that we put these stations on rooftops like, you know, in urban environments not just in Austin, but in other cities as well. Yeah. And by doing that, you can extend the range of where you can actually cover. Think of them almost like cell phone towers. Like uh, you can have like a cell phone tower just in one location, but only people around that tower have the internet. And like maybe mm-hmm. like a few miles down, that person's in a, in a you know black spot or whatnot. But mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, no, uh, in a sense, uh, I, I really think the idea that you have these stations spread across an area is, is a lot more of a value add. And you can get to the destination much more quickly. Like, you know, um, you can tell people that, oh, we respond to 911 calls in two to three minutes because you know you can't because you're spread over a wide area yeah. versus being in one central point and be like, we respond, depending yeah. on how close you are, three minutes, five minutes, but we respond pretty quickly yeah. um, kind of deal. But yeah. Yeah. Wow. I actually like this, this overall concept of uh, public safety with uh, heating drones and, uh, and being able to respond to situations better, surveil the area. Yeah. really know what's happening you know and that's the future 
and hopefully we can keep our cities safer. It is. Way. It is. Yeah. But moving away from public safety, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, you know, as you, when you started EV, tech, EV vehicles, mm-hmm. you probably got some interest from non-public safety related entities, right? Where, where yeah. In terms of early adopters, what type of customers are you, are, you, are you seeing that have been showing you some interest? Yeah, so we've also thought of doing private security. Um, we've spoken to a few um, oil and gas um, clients that were potentially interested in replacing their security guard that drives a fence line with just like a, a drone that does that patrol. Um, so refineries, pipelines are, are a customer that we've spoken with, and we have some early interest there as well. Uh, we've also talked to a few Texas ranchers. In fact, we had a, an Alpha drone um, at a ranch in South Texas around Edinburgh um, with uh, one of our early customers. And yeah, so there there's a lot of applications for like drone network systems with like cameras and whatnot. But we we wanted to do public safety in part because there's a big demand. There's a big um, public safety labor shortage occurring right now nationwide. A lot of police academies aren't getting applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, people aren't going um, into like uh, fire departments to become firefighters and paramedics to become like emergency service um, providers. Um, so in a sense, there is like um, a labor shortage. So we wanted to use like some form of automation with robotics to be able to help op- let these operations operate more efficiently because... It's crazy to think about, but like public safety, like phone call operations, it really hasn't like experienced a lot of innovation in the last like 80 mm-hmm. years. Like, okay, so like you you close your eyes and you're like, okay, a hundred years ago in the 1920s, like the phones had been around for what, like maybe a quarter century since yeah. like Bell had to like, you know, popularize them. So you had someone pick up their phone, they called 911, police picked up, they was like, how can I help you? And that interaction is like the same, same. today, except with the yeah. cell phone. And like, you think they would have developed like a mobile app or something where like, you know, you call 911 and like you have a video stream going and you can mm-hmm. see the cop and the person calling 911 can show the cop what's going on or it's still just voice. And um, so like the ability to use a robot to be able to have eyes on scene really quickly is I think is a big value add. Um, and also just here in Austin, for example, during peak 911 call volume hour, like like during like five to like nine when it's, it gets pretty bad, um, you can be on hold for like five to 10 minutes. Like yeah. I've been on hold once when I when I was calling 911 for seven minutes. And um, for them to send help, sometimes it can be quick. Like if there's, if you heard gunshots or something, they'll be there relatively quickly, like in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but if it's something like a petty crime, like maybe your your TV or your house was broken into and they stole your TV or they stole something, your, your yeah. laptop, sometimes they won't follow up for months. They'll be like, oh, we'll send a police officer um, next month on said date or whatnot. So like the reason why is because they just don't have enough people to be able to follow up on everything. And um, in part because um, they're not able to operate like super efficiently with like, you know, with the officers they have. Um, I, I know one of our team members, our VP of uh, strategic partnerships, he was an Austin cop for 26 years. He was on the force for that long. And he was telling us when he joined the company last year that before the pandemic, Austin Police Academy was getting a thousand applicants every month for people who wanted to be a cop. At the end of last year, in December, they got 40. What? Yeah. <laughs> and it's getting worse, like in the sense, so like, 40. There, yeah, there, there's less cops in the pipeline being trained 
um, less and less police officers, like crime is gonna get worse before it gets better. And like for that reason, like we need we need like new solutions that like yeah. solve this big problem. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know the problem was that bad. From a thousand a month to forty. Yep. Uh, yeah, with wow. the whole defund police movement and all these other things, like yeah, uh-huh. it got pretty bad. Hmm. But uh, thinking about uh, shrinkage, um, there are some industries like uh, warehousing, maybe, and some other spaces where it, it, technologies had, had had to be developed, like robots, for example. Yeah to ma- basically move stuff around warehouses mm-hmm. uh, to make up for uh, the loss of workers and lack of interest of people in, 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 in work in, in working in that environment, for example, right? right. Is this what's likely to happen? Because you've seen movies mm-hmm. where in the future, uh, police officers are just like basically, <laughs> there are hardly any police officers and most of the surveilling is done with like technology, like drones and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is, that, is, is that what's gonna happen here eventually where we, we will no longer be worried about the lack of applications because, um, you know, you don't need a lot of police officers anyway with the technology that you are developing, for example. Yeah, I, I really believe that this is, like, square one to, like, a very large, like, field where, like, right now we're replying to one, 911 calls. That's the first application yeah. of the Crow system. We're like, 911 comes in, you're like, okay, let's send a drone and see what's going on there. But, mm-hmm. like, there's going to be a day where, like, the crow drone will eventually do patrol where it's like flying up and down like you know lamar or Mm -hmm. on mopac and the crow drone is going to be what's giving out speeding tickets because and the reason why (laughs) the reason excuse me the reason why i say that is because like humans like we're meant to do hard stuff like in the sense Uh that like we problem solve we have these brains like you know we look at situations and we think like Measuring the velocity of a vehicle going down a straight line yeah. and being able to be like, yo, this is going like 15 miles over the limit. Let's get a shot of the license plate, send the ticket. You don't need a human to do that. A robot uh-huh. can do that. Yeah. The human needs to be solving a crime that requires like detective work. And like, you know, it's actually like requires their like full attention. And uh, so, you yeah, know, I believe there's going to be other applications of Crow that eventually it's going to be the Crow Patrol, like, you know, or yeah. this and that. And um that's going to be really driven by, like, the software on the drone because, mm-hmm. and the sensors on the drone, by the way. So, like, right now, like I said, we have a very early application of what we want to do, but the roadmap is long. And mm-hmm. there's going to be situations where, like, the crow, and I genuinely believe this, that the crow is going to respond to 911 calls, and it's going to be saving people's lives. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's going to be de-escalations that occur, maybe, like, the crow got there on the 911 call within three minutes and they were able to spot the person kidnapping a child or someone and they were able to yeah. follow that kidnapper versus someone calling in that call saying, oh my God, this is happening. And the cop shows up 30 minutes later and the person's gone. Like, you know, mm. so like being able to get a, a public safety response on scene really quickly is going to be incredibly very useful and it's going to be a net positive on the world. I really believe that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and there are a lot of... Uh police officers obviously who are on traffic duty who you know complain about not doing like more challenging tasks and now you can do it it's almost like what ai is doing to many industries Mm -hmm. uh, where it's making it's allowing for people to stop doing mundane tasks or the easy tasks and actually begin to think and innovate beyond what they normally would have spent their time doing absolutely which brings me to the question of ai yeah right (laughs) right so you, you you're building you know you're building the crow 
you're deploying the crow, you have it, you also have a drone network because you're allowing drones nest or live in environments where that is available. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's a network. Uh, do you see a future in which artificial intelligence is involved with, with this network? It is the deployment of drones, the yeah. communication with each other, and the gathering of data. So how would all these uh, different uh, activities uh, be impacted by artificial intelligence, if, if at all? Yeah. So AI. Um, <laughs> I, like you I use I use ChatGPT for quite a bit, <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm not a software guy in the sense that like uh, like I'm, I'm I'm mostly like mechanical engineer. I do like kind yeah. of design work and everything. But I'll give you my thoughts on AI. I really I really believe right now with what the crow is doing, we are doing some computer vision with recognition and whatnot. The drone can recognize a person and can spot them and keep them like in lock or like recognize a car and like, you know, look at the license plate and things like that. But um, as the models get more like the neural nets and what get more sophisticated on the drone, there's gonna be a lot more um, thinking and things that it can do. And I also, so every drone, every crow right now has an NVIDIA Jetson Orin as its huh. companion computer that- um, So you have the GPU and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So think okay. of like our, like, so a lot of drones have two things. They, they'll have the flight computer, that all the flight computer does is make sure the drone is flying, it's level. When you send it a command to move forward, it does that, it manages all the power through the system and whatnot. And then you have the companion computer, and the companion computer you can attach cameras to, you can run like like computer models and do all these other things. And it's almost like the left brain and the right brain of the drone, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, so like we're very early because obviously our team isn't really big. We're six full-time employees, and then we have another six interns. So the team as a whole is like a dozen yeah. uh, at EVE. And um, and, and nearly like all of us were all like an engineering background, um, except like for the business development people, which is about like three of us. Um, but um, but yeah, no, like there's a lot of development ahead of us that we're gonna do on the Crow. And like I said, different applications will pop up and we'll be able to um, solve more complex problems as we write more software for it. Yeah. But um, but like I said, the, the, the Crow is at, uh, iPhone version one. <laughs> We're not at ten yet, but yeah. we'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about it. You've thought about like AI, and I think your 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 technology, your industry is adjacent to AI. Like it's it's gonna get get affected by AI. And I want to even ask you a deeper question, or a, okay, maybe a ridiculous question. We'll mm -hmm. see how that goes. <sighs> Many experts in the AI space yeah. have predicted that we'll approach AGI. Mm -hmm. that's artificial general intelligence okay. within a few years with AI suppressing human intelligence, Yeah. right? So um, within that time period, right? Okay, so now speaking about the crow and uh, drones as first responders, technologies like that, yeah. what's the likelihood that we can predict public safety events before they happen, just like in the minority report? The movie by Tom Cruise, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Movie with Tom Cruise, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I, I mean, you, you're the CEO of a of a major tech company. I'm sure you. So, <laughs> I'm sure you I, thought about some of these things, no? We have, we have. So, like, um, there's a lot of startups in Austin. It's great. It's a great city to live in if you're building a tech company for sure. Uh -huh. I've, en I've I've encountered a lot of entrepreneurs, and one of them is a founder of a company called uh, Loretta IO. 
And they've actually developed, they work with the Department of Homeland Security and they have a few airports where they have this technology. But like computer vision, like from what I understand, there's like the way that you identify things and you track things. You're like, oh, that's a human. Let me follow it and keep it in my camera's line of sight. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of companies that do a lot of computer vision tracking and recognition and whatnot. And they have really good models that they've built on that. What this company has done, though, and like why like we're interested and we're talking with him as well. The, the CEO's name is Galvin. And um, so he's developed an, um, a model where not only does it track, and this is why they're starting to use it in airports, it can kind of infer like what a person is doing. And the way it does that is not only is it looking at the person, it's looking at what the person is doing, maybe the way they're walking, what they're walking into like a convenience store. So like think about like him tracking an individual in an airport and then the person walks into like an airport bakery. Like the algorithm will infer, hmm, that person might actually walk out of that bakery with a baked good. And like that's like an early level <laughs> yeah, of like yeah. where you're yeah. seeing a situation and the AI is like, a person goes into a building um, to, like, you know, McDonald's. They'll probably walk out with a burger or some chicken yeah. nuggets or some fries, like, yeah. you know. So that's good and bad because, like, there could be, like, misconstructions as well. Or mm -hmm. maybe maybe the AI is like, oh, that's a bad actor. But that person's just, like, a regular person doing, like, going about their everyday life. I do believe over time it will be more accurate. But I also feel that's a little dangerous. There's always going to have to be a human involved with that because, mm -hmm. like, we can't have, like, AI saying, oh, that person, you know, could have done X, Y, Z. Uh -huh. And um, and maybe that, that model was wrong, like, you know, and you can incriminate someone or whatnot based on what, like, a computer model, like, saw. Um, but I do believe it's going to be something that helps a lot in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and I do believe that we will eventually use it on the Crow as well, where maybe you'll see someone on 6th Street and you see them reaching for their pocket and, like, you had recognized that person maybe earlier down the street, you thought you saw a gun or something like that, uh -huh. where the drone, one drone will talk to another drone that's like, hey, that person's a little suspicious. I think they might've been carrying a firearm. And then the the second drone sees that person's actually reaching for it. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, something's about to happen. I really believe that that's very close. Like we can actually be there by like the year 2030 um, with drones, like wow. in that sense, yeah. So, so it's basically finding that balance between privacy and objective reality in, in, in terms of the way people actually behave then. Yeah. Like you don't want to, you don't want to invade privacy. You also don't want to uh, profile people unnecessarily. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And we've talked to police stations about the crow and the drone as a first responder and how they'll be used. They purposely were very clear that the crow and the drone as a first responder will be doing overt operations. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is like there's like police bells and whistles on this drone. Like when the drone is coming, you will know. Like oh, a cop okay. is coming, sirens and and whatnot. Like we don't, they don't want covert operations. Like the idea that you're walking down Lamar and all of a sudden you feel like a chill and you look over your shoulder <laughs> and you see like on the building rooftop, there's like this robot with a red eye just looking at you. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, okay, that's really creepy. It's not going to be like that. Like, you will know when a drone as a first responder arrives. It'll make noise. Like, it'll, it'll be like, hey, police presence is here. Like, the, the idea is not to hide. Like, we want people to know. We want people to feel safe. Like, you know, yeah. in a sense, like, you, you should feel that you're like, hey, there's a cop on scene already, although it's a robot cop. But in a sense, like, 
the presence will be known and it's not going to be hidden like in the sense yeah 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 I'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking more along the lines so, so if the austin department if the austin police department is is thinking about it that way then that's great but mm-hmm. i can give you a bunch of examples about how for example when data uh data companies uh, were misusing people's data yeah. without telling them right and um you know you have phone companies being forced to create a back end to their systems you have uh some cities installing like surveillance systems that if you're driving a certain car within a certain environment then you get ticketed because that car pollutes the environment and things like that yeah. like i'm just thinking about um not necessarily bad actors but people uh going beyond their what they are allowed to do in terms of uh invading privacy or controlling people in a sense yeah. and the possibilities around this and and whether the your industry your space is beginning to think about those things in the future because yeah. like with every every industry with every technology system they're always going to be bad actors yeah right so uh, that's really where the question is coming from but uh i'm hoping that it's just one of those things that helps keep uh society safer yeah. with limited invasion of privacy and um in a way that is also fair uh to everybody involved right so Absolutely. you know so that's if it turns out that way which i think it will and then it would be great and hopefully also we can see you said the idea the idea of the crow is to start as a as drones as first responders but yeah. it's it should vertically integ- uh, integrate properly into the whole evitol system right evitol space yeah yeah, yeah. so in, in a sense in terms of it sharing the the highways of the sky yeah. with, with Amazon's delivery drone. I mean, it's going to do that yeah. for sure. And um, and and yeah, and flying cars, and flying cars, and as planes, well. and things like that. Yeah, like I really think the way when when the dust settles and we're looking back, I think it's going to be something like like between like a hundred and fifty feet to like five hundred feet. Those are going to be like. The drones as a first responder, uh-huh. Amazon's delivery drone, yeah. zipline delivery drone. That's their airspace. And then like maybe from like 750 feet to like 1,000 feet, that's like the flying cars. That's people flying across like a town and whatnot. And eventually it's going to look a little bit like Fifth Element or something. <laughs> like yeah. where there's like just like traffic left and right, people flying back and forth. And, and like robots on the bottom lanes, like flying cars on the top lanes and and i really believe it's going to be released like in stages it's not going to be from one day to the next that you know they're like oh on september 1st 2025 is when like all the delivery (laughs) drones are going to circle no it's going to be like you'll see one here there Uh the application starts getting more popular but there will be an inflection point and also like uh, so uh, like a little caveat really quick um when I first met Colin, Gwen, like my, my old boss. Um, the DJI uh, from, yeah, the CEO? DJI uh, founder of North America and CEO. Yeah, he, um, it was at Capital Factory, which is a technology incubator and accelerator um, here in town in downtown Austin at the, yeah. in the Omni building. And um, it was on the 16th floor and he was giving a talk. And I think the chair of the aerospace engineering department was with him as well from UT. And they're talking about flying robots and whatnot. And I'll never forget, like, Colin said something that really, like, like reverberated with me where he was, like, and this is, like, the year it was, like, 2019. And he was, like, do you know how we know the drone industry hasn't arrived yet? And everyone's, like, how? And he's, like, look out the window. 
and we were on the 16th floor and he's like <laughs> where are the drones and there were none so like you know and it was so yeah, true a good line it was so true and i was like you know what you're right the drone industry has not arrived yeah. yet like you know yeah that's that's wow that's that's a, yeah it's a very good picture right there i actually started thinking about how when you describe like the allowance in terms of or maybe drones can fly 500 feet yeah. You said to a thousand feet. Yeah. Maybe flying cars maybe fly higher than that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Then planes, you know, twenty thousand feet to thirty something thousand feet. Right. It seems like the third dimension of transportation is a lot more complex than than the existing dimensions. It is. It or, is. or will be a lot more complex. It will. It will be very complex because you need to have every single vehicle in the sky talking to one another if you want to prevent oh. accidents and whatnot. So the air traffic management system is going to have to be really good. Also, though, like, I think it's going to happen a lot more quickly. And the reason why is, like, for us to live in, a, in an automobile world, mm -hmm. roads had to be built for automobiles. And, mm -hmm. and sure, you can say, oh, but roads existed for horses and buggies, but they really didn't exist in between towns and outside of cities, and it was really bad. Like, yeah. the, the roads weren't really developed. So it costs a lot of capital infrastructure to build out the road network, not just in America, but, like, across the world. Yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, so like the thing about the flying cars and the drones and everything, you're not like pouring concrete in the sky and be like, oh man, this is going to be like a super highway, like five yeah. lanes and this. you're writing code. Yeah. So like, like a highway in the sky that's digital where like a flying car knows it's there. Like, you know, the people on the computer know it's there, but it's just lines of code saying that from South Austin to North Austin at a thousand feet like at this like gps point and at this gps endpoint there's a road in the sky mm -hmm. that vehicles travel through mm -hmm. and because it's it's like written in software i feel like it can be done much more quickly like mm -hmm. and i feel that for that reason when it when the inflection point happens the growth is going to be like a hockey stick because yeah i don't believe it's going to require a tremendous amount of capital intensive like you know yeah. like projects to make it happen and uh and I think I understand what you mean now by saying that um, it, it will have to be autonomous. Yeah. Because if they're going to speak to each other and they're going to have to be required to stay within a certain uh, airspace or whatever, yeah. then you have to reduce human error. Yes, reduce <laughs> risk as well. Yeah, course. reduce yeah. risk of, of collisions and whatever in the sky. That's yeah. not going to be pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a lot here uh, we've talked about today. I'm really uh, rooting for for this for for e vehicles and uh, and the space in general it's very exciting i want to see let's see two three years from now and see that there are drones in the sky yeah right <laughs> you know you know when we have this discussion again we we look outside the window like yeah yeah something is happening out there now um well roger thanks for coming today yeah. um i really appreciate it uh where where can uh people find you if they want to reach out uh about you know, the technology yeah. and things like that. So we have our website, which is www.eve, uh, like the one who bit the apple, vehicles.com. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, uh, you can shoot me an email as well. I usually respond same day for the most part. Uh, my, my email is just roger at evehicles.com. Um, and uh, we're on Instagram too and on Twitter. Just look for evehicles on the gram or on Twitter. And yeah. uh, you can also follow us on LinkedIn as well. We're on LinkedIn too. Yeah, so that's evehicles.com? -E yes. Dot, dot com? Yeah. Dot com. Okay, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Again, 
thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Daniel. <laughs> thanks for coming. It was, it was so much fun. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's got me thinking a lot about the future. And uh, this has been another episode of the Hard Tech Podcast. I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank mm-hmm. you.